Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church located in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 2 as Pastor Mitch Pridgen continues his series in the book of Romans. Certainly the last 15 verses of chapter 1 have had us up to our noses, so to say, in the sinfulness of man. And Paul has, as Paul has addressed the Gentile man, the Greek man and woman. And now we move into chapter 2. It's going to get better. Let's read it and see. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Are we ready to go home? Number two. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The question immediately arises. When you read this, obviously, we know in the original language, in the Greek, original text of the Greek, which we don't have, by the way, we have copies of the originals. But we know that in the oldest manuscripts we do have, there is no chapter and verse division. And that was given to us by the translators later. And so if you were to have in front of you the Greek text in its most ancient form, this would just run as a continuous letter, writing. And yet if you look here, there's clearly a transition. And that's why the the translators and interpreters have given us this chapter and verse division here. Because there is clearly a break in verse 32 and what he's beginning to say in chapter 2, verse 1, just by the use of the word, therefore. Linking it to what he's already said, but now implying he's getting ready to deal with something completely not different, but on another note. But in the same regard. So the question immediately arises from the opening language of verse 1 of chapter 2. Who is Paul now addressing? This is an important issue. Who is Paul now addressing? It's clear in chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. He is addressing Gentiles. 
specifically Gentile unbelievers, who, by the way, those Gentiles who were in the Roman church had one time, had one time themselves been unregenerate, living out in their pagan culture, carrying out their pagan practices, and now had come to faith in Christ. There are differences of opinion. Some, in fact, many of the translators, interpreters, argue Paul is now turning his attention from the Jews to the Greeks or to, or from the Gentiles, the Greeks now to the Jews. Now then, then there's the, another group which would probably more be the minority. You say, well, Mitch, where are you going to fall? I'm always usually in the middle here somewhere. But there, there's the, the minority view which argues that Paul is now not only addressing the Jews, but others also. Perhaps Paul was addressing the Jew to the Jews particularly, but, ra- but also others generally who did not, as I like what John Murray writes in his commentary on this, quote, consider themselves to be in the degraded moral and religious condition delineated in the preceding verses, end of quote. So what Murray says is there are certainly the Jews who would look down their proverbial noses and say, well, that's not us. We don't do those things. And then there might be the non-Jews sitting with them listening to this and say, well, neither do I. And so is he writing specifically and only to the Jew at this point, or could he be possibly writing mainly to the Jew and also to others who may see themselves as moralists, those who, who don't do those things? And that, that's the position that I take. I don't argue. I mean, I think it's very clear he's addressing Jews. But I don't think he's isolated it specifically just to the Jews. I'm in pretty good company on that as well through my reading. There's good reason to believe, indeed, Paul has turned his attention to the Jews. For example, there's a little, there's little doubt the Jews had a propensity to judge the Gentile people for their religious as well as moral perversity. For example, idolatry. What is the most detestable thing a Jew can think of? Idolatry. I mean, that, that's gotten them in trouble from all way back. And they've got a history of, of idolatry and suffering the, the vengeance and wrath of God by virtue of their idolatry. So they were very tenacious to separate themselves, to distance themselves from anything that could even hint of idolatry in any form, shape, I mean, of anything. And so they were looking, oh, those pagans are idolaters, but no, 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 we're not idolaters, no. We don't practice idolatry. And looking at moral perversity. Oh no, oh no, we're not, we're not like them. Not at all. Then in verse 4, for another proof, another evidence that he is indeed primarily addressing the Jews, even though I do stand on the fact these others he's addressing as well, is that in verse 4 he says, the riches of his, speaking of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. You know what that is? That's covenant language. That's God's covenant language to his people that certainly would apply to the Jew. There are other very sound arguments that have been posed by interpreters in support of the position of Paul now speaking to the Jew. However, it is not my intention to spend time at this point because I've already given you my position. Yes, Mitch, I I do believe he's addressing the Jew, but I believe it's broader and wider than that. I believe it is. And so, if indeed Paul is writing to the unbelieving Jews or Jew, there is still much for us, all of us, and listen carefully, all of us to glean from what he is writing. That's why it's given to us. There are clear principles. 
in what Paul says that have been that have a very broad application. What Paul writes is important to every single man. Jew, yes. Every other man, yes also. And let's examine this. In verse 1, let's read it again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul begins the chapter by, in reality, here's what he's doing. He loves doing this. Paul was a professional on this, is using the shock factor. You know, it's just about the time that you've pointed the finger at somebody else and says, oh, that's them, but that's not me. And then all of a sudden he comes and says, oh, by the way, that's you too. <laughs> startling. And so he begins the chapter by startling his readers. And indeed, his opening would be startling to the Jew. The religious Jew, the moralist, having just heard what Paul has said in chapter 1, would have already begun to pat himself on the back, priding himself. That he does not practice such debauch or debauchery. And at the height of his self-praise and approval, he is hit with the very same words Paul has used in chapter 1, verse 20. You have no excuse. Just because in their own minds they deem themselves excluded from God's wrath. Because again, in their own minds they did not see themselves as having sunken to the moral low of the pagans around them. The moralist inevitably says something like this. I do not do those things. To me, that would be unthinkable. Now, allow me to interject something here. Have you ever had a conversation with a moralist? You know what I mean by moralist? If you don't understand what I mean by moralist, you will when I, another way of perhaps saying, I don't even know whether I would categorize it the same as a legalist, but a moralist. I'll give you just an explanation here. By this, I mean a person who appeals to the notion that he is not like those other people. I know you never met anybody like that. You're not like that, right? Who's not, who claims that he's not like those other people who do those kind of things, whatever those kind of things may be. And in reality, and this is important for us to note, in reality, from all outward appearances, they seem to be just the way they are portraying themselves. And they really may outwardly appear to be very moral people. You ever met people like that? That had no profession of faith, but appeared to be very moral people. They may exemplify characteristics and traits that are associated with good moral character. There are people just like this today. These are oftentimes, there are oftentimes, they, I'm sorry, these are oftentimes the most difficult to reach with the gospel. Why? Think with me for a moment. They're the most difficult to reach with the gospel because they're basically the one that says, well, I'm really not that bad. I don't do those things. I've never hurt anybody. I've never murdered anybody. I've never lied to anybody. They just lied when they told you that. <laughs> never stolen anything. They just, I've never looked at a man or a woman in the wrong manner. So they, you see how they, they're explaining themselves away, their sin away. 
asked them this question. They're the most difficult to reach for the gospel, but she asked them this question. If you were to die today and found yourself standing before God and He asked you, why should I allow you into heaven? You might hear something like one of these or more. Well, I'm basically a good person. I've heard that. I mean, has anybody else heard that besides me? I've been many conversations. Secondly, you might hear something like this. And there's so many. I, I, won't even, I, I had a videotape years ago where actually they had gone on the streets and they, they interviewed literally hundreds of people and came up with the top ten answers to this question. I don't even know where that video... Does anybody know what a videotape is? It's not on a DVD. But you might hear think, well, I, I'm basically... A, I, I'm a good, a good person, basically. Or I'm, very, I'm a very spiritual person. That seems to be the popular one today. Boy, is that ambiguous. I'm a spiritual... What is that? In fact, I ask people, if somebody says, well, I'm a very spiritual person. Wonderful. Can you explain what that means to me and just let them back themselves in a corner? Very spiritual person. How about this one? I believe in God. I mean, that, saw, that cures it all, right? Well, what did Jesus say about that? Well, demons believe in God. So they also hear something like, I'm a member of a church. Well, I was baptized as a baby. Or I've been a member of the church all my life. The list goes on and on. I'm not going to just belabor that point. The list goes on. The problem with these answers is that they failed to address the they failed to address the fundamental problem. And the man's inherent sinfulness is the fundamental problem and its consequences which alienates men from God. I once had a lady tell me personally that she believed, and this is basically her words, she believed it was what she did here in this life that mattered. In other words, her good works. Now, in one sense, she's, she's half right. But in a situation like this, to be half right is to be in serious trouble. Somehow she hoped to merit heaven based upon her own works and good morals. Listen very carefully. I'm not saying good works and morals are useless, but they're not sufficient to merit salvation. You need to understand that. In yours and my good works, if yours and my good works and good morals are enough to merit salvation, listen very carefully, church. Then the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cruel Roman cross, enduring the wrath of God on our sin, was the greatest atrocity ever committed against humans in history. If somehow, my goodness... And my merits or my, my morals could merit salvation. In fact, I, I, saw a, I saw a shirt. Remember years ago, back in the early 70s, this book came out, I'm okay, you're okay. I had the paperback book. I don't know where it is. Probably burned many years ago. But on the front, of, uh, there's a front of a t-shirt that I saw years ago. And it said, if I'm okay and you're okay. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting. It's put in question form. And then the person turned around. And there's Jesus hanging on the cross. And it said, explain this. I went, wow, what a powerful shirt. If I'm okay and you're okay, then explain this. And that's exactly what I'm saying here. 
Do, do your best. In fact, in fact, God did not say, do your best, and that will suffice. In this ver- first verse of chapter 2, Paul immediately sets out to make one thing perfectly clear. Man, all men are without excuse and are equally guilty and condemned. In verse 1, Paul addresses passing judgment on another. Interesting point here. And let's make sure we understand this. A person that judges another has a criterion by which he judges. Now listen carefully. He claims to know the difference between what is right and wrong. He has made moral standards by which he passes judgment. Now, here what the, is where the moralist fails. Or what the moralist fails to recognize is this. That the very same standards that they are applying to others, guess what? Apply to them. The very same standards apply to them. He is condemned by his own criteria. In his self-righteousness, he's failed to see how miserably short he himself falls of God's righteous standard. Two important things to remember. Yet the moralist misses them both. Number one, the height of God's righteous standard, a standard of righteousness, how high God's righteousness, standard of righteousness is. And then number two, the depth of man's own sin. Might I add a third one? And the way to remedy them. <laughs> or somehow reconcile them. They often exaggerate the faults of others. I know none of us are guilty of that, right? We often exaggerate the faults of others and then minimizing our own. I've often said, this is a phrase that I've used many times, is that, that sadly in my own life and in others as well, but in my own life, I often judge others by their actions and my own self by my intentions. I saw some of you shake your head. It came home, didn't it? They often exaggerate their faults, exaggerate faults of others, minimizing their own. Very explicit. This is a very explicit illustration of what I'm talking about. Turn to Luke's gospel. And uh, I know I've got you looking at some passages this morning. That's okay, right? You don't want to go out in the thunder and lightning. (coughs) I always use that as an excuse. Look at Luke chapter 18. And look at verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is our Lord talking. And in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's exactly what Paul is talking about there. And back in Romans. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. What a tremendous illustration of contrition in the ancient culture, beating your, your breast to just express your tremendous contr- contrition 
over your actions. Beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Obviously, in this parable of our Lord, the Pharisee exaggerated his own righteousness. No doubt about that. His righteous acts, fasting, tithing, combined with the things he claimed not to be guilty of, all he meant to be applied, the very things he's, he's doing this, and probably in, even though it's a parable, Jesus is trying to communicate the point that he's actually probably doing this in, in, sight, in the sound of the tax collector who's hearing him. So he's pointing the finger at the one who's standing beside him. They're there praying together. So he's applying these to the tax collector. I love the way the footnotes of the MacArthur Study Bible, and many of you have that in your lap right now, so you can look with me. I love the way the footnotes in the MacArthur Study Bible address this. Listen to what MacArthur writes on page 1512 if you have your MacArthur Study Bible. He says, quote, Such confidence in one's inherent righteousness is a damning hope because human righteousness, even the righteousness of the most fastidious Pharisee, falls short of the divine standard, end of quote. Now, in verse 1, Paul also accuses his readers of practicing the very same things. Because someone does not outwardly commit such shameful deeds as were listed in chapter 1 does not mean they are innocent. But one need only read the Sermon on the Mount to see that the condition of one's heart is as crucial as their outward actions. However, it was probable that some of these self-righteous judges were guilty of some of the very same things. Either way, I believe in the context Paul is addressing the issue of hypocrisy. The hypocrisy places, their hypocrisy places them in the same place as the pagan Gentiles. And where is that? We'll look at verse 2. Verse 2 back in Romans 2. He says here, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Wow. Clearly that place is the judgment of God. It rightly falls, Paul says, on all the guilty regardless. Now look at verse 3. He says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Here is the second time Paul uses the phrase, O man. This is Paul's attempt to summon the person to attention. Let me get your attention. O man, you. There's no leniency on God's part toward such men. Every man, Jew or Greek, Gentile, 
who practices ungodliness or hypocrisy is under God's condemnatory sentence. That's why we need to be very careful. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here we see the covenant language, as I mentioned to you earlier, that has led some commentators to believe, as I already said, Paul is speaking to the Jew. Indeed, God has been kind to the Jew. God has been patient towards the Jew. Yet such kindness is meant to accomplish something. And Paul tells us very clearly what the kindness and forbearance and patience of God was intended to accomplish in regards to the Jew was to lead them to repentance. God's forbearance and God's patience were displayed in that God did not execute His immediate wrath on their sin. In contrast, God did something. God extended His kindness in order to do something to lead them to repentance. That's exactly what Peter says in regards to us. God being rich in mercy... Mercy, and I said this to you before, mercy is that which God does not give us what we rightfully deserve. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. And yet mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And then in verse 5, he goes on. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What a powerful verse. Even in light, even in light of God's forbearance. You want know forbearance? That word forbearance in, in the Greek is, is, is an interesting word. It, it implies a temporary truce that is initiated by God. It's like God calls a truce temporarily. Oh, can you imagine such a thing? That's his forbearance. And then his patience, which implies a voluntary withholding of vengeance. So God calls a truce temporarily and withholds his vengeance or his wrath. But, but, but man remains hard and impenitent at his heart. And by doing so, is storing up wrath for himself. When is that wrath to be executed? Paul tells you. That wrath is to be executed on the day of wrath. And we'll pause right there for this edition of Crosswalk Radio as our time has come to a conclusion. We thank you for joining us today and as always encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org for more information. Thanks for listening today and please tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.